this uh, fourth Sunday of Advent. So a couple things I want to mention before I dive into God's Word, and that is tonight we are continuing an evening Advent series, the fourth a Sunday of Advent, and uh, we're going through a series called The Songs of Christmas. We're singing Christmas carols. Uh, you hear a message uh, from one of our pa- pastoral staff, and uh, tonight we're meeting here at 6 o'clock. So I encourage you to come and invite your friends. And next Sunday, uh, big Sunday, Christmas Eve, as we celebrate Christmas, and we will have three different services for you. Uh, the first is at 11 a.m. Sunday morning, and that will be different than the three and the five services. The three and the five services will be our candlelight services, and we'll have a different message and different songs for the 11 o'clock and then the three and the five. We will have nursery uh, for the 11 and the three o'clock. We will not have it for the five o'clock. So please make your plans and also tell your friends and family uh, who will be with us that day about those plans. Well, we are in a, a series now looking at 1 John on Sunday mornings, and I'm calling, I'm calling it the incarnate Christ, and uh, we're looking now at 1 John chapter 2. So please turn with me there, and I'll be reading from the ESV translation. We'll, we'll go through verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which we walked, or he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For, for many years since I've been doing ministry, I oftentimes will talk with people who are on the dating scene or in the dating scene and, and they, they ask me this familiar question that all of us at one time probably asked and that is, how do you know when you have met the one? And usually I answer the question with kind of a silly answer and that is, well, you'll know when you know. And then they look at me really frustrated and they're thinking, is that it? It's like, well, yeah, you'll know when you know. It just kind of happens. There's no really formula other than you know. And that's oftentimes not enough for them. Uh, And so they'll ask me more questions. And then I'll, I'll go over a couple things. And I'll say, well, really, there's three things that you need to think about when you're looking for Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. And the first thing you look for in a future spouse is what I call the doctrine test. Does that person believe in Jesus? Do they love Jesus? Uh, Are they involved in 
a local church? Do they, do they think like you when it comes to spiritual things? Do you, are you on the same wavelength when it comes to your Christian faith? Do you share the same values, the Christian values? Uh, that really is the number, number one thing. I'm telling my kids already, they're fortunately not in that world right now and they won't be till they're 25. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I tell them, hey kids, the first thing that mom and dad, the, the, the main requirement is you've got to date somebody who is a believer. They have to love Jesus. If they don't, they're not coming in this house, you know, as far as that relationship goes. And, and so that's the first thing. And, and what I call it is the doctrine test. And, and I, I use a C and that is compatible. Are they compatible with you and what you believe? And are they compatible with what God teaches? Uh, the second test that I often tell people to think about when they're ever looking for a future spouse is what I call the moral test. And this, you can only know over time. So you need to get to know the person for a little while, for a season to see, okay, does this person, second C, have character? Do they have proven character where they are uh, strong workers, a good work ethic? Are, are they people of integrity? Are they honest? Are they humble? Do they, do they quickly admit their faults and their sins? And, and, and are they humbling themselves before God on a regular basis? You know, that's character. That is the moral test. Are they, are they proven over time that they love Jesus, that, that they have the fruit of the Spirit? So that's the second test you look for. So you don't just look, you know, for the doctrine test. You also look for the moral test. And the third thing I tell them to, to think about is the love test. And it's the third C, and that is chemistry. That's the easiest when you're dating because is there chemistry between you and that person? Is there attraction? And not just physical, but is there, uh, is there emotional attraction? You know, do you, do you begin to love that person? Do they love you? Do they love Jesus? Do they love others? Do they get along well with your family and with your friends? Does your family and friends like them? You know, that's a big part of a relationship is the family dynamics and the friendship circles. And so again, that's the third test, the love test. And I would argue that if you have all three of those things, if you have compatibility, if you have character, if you have chemistry, uh, then you've probably met the one. You've probably met the one. You know, when it, when it came to me, uh, it was pretty easy because I got to know Stephanie. We were friends for, for a while. We worked together uh, for a year and a half. And the first thing was, was pretty simple. What, what, what really attracted me to her was that she had the same faith and the same values as I had. Uh, she would drive 30 minutes to the big First Baptist Orlando church and sit in the balcony by herself. Uh, and she would do that. And that really resonated with me. And then as we got to know each other, I told her, okay, before we start dating, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm gonna be a Presbyterian pastor. So there's a lot of similarities to Baptists and Presbyterians, but there's some subtle differences too that you need to know about. And so when we went over that, she said, oh, I really like the Presbyterian doctrine. And, and now she's more Presbyterian than me. Um, not really, not really. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, but, but it's good, it's good. We, we, we really were compatible with the same doctrines, the same beliefs, the same church. It's been great. Uh, the second part, uh, the second test was moral. And I'll tell you, working with her helped because I got to see how she managed um, people. She was a manager. I got to see how she uh, took care of the, of the customer. Uh, she was very honest in her work. She was a hard worker. Uh, she really displayed the fruit of the spirit. And, and I could see that she was uh, to the best of her ability by God's grace, seeking to live like him. 
And I was like, oh, great. This, this girl's got good character. And then the third was really simple. I mean, uh, I was attracted to her from the moment I saw her. And 15 years is our anniversary next month. And I'm more attracted to her now than I was then. And so I say that because the chemistry is there. It was there. And that was simple. But it wasn't just the chemistry. It was her love for Christ. It was her love for life. It was her love for others. And honestly, it's her love for our kids now. And it's her love for the church, this family now. Uh, that makes me love her even more. And so again, check, check, check. Um, but I, I say that because it's, it's important whenever you date somebody to think about those things. So in light of that, I want you now to shift gears and I want you to think about you being a Christian. You being a Christian. How do you know that you're a Christian? And I would argue this is one of the most important things a Christian wrestles with and thinks about on a regular basis. I've talked to so many of you, I've talked to so many people in my lifetime who have asked the question, how do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you're a Christian? And this whole idea of assurance of salvation is a really big deal for Christians. We, we, we need to be assured and we wanna be assured that when we die, we will go to heaven. I did a funeral yesterday for a, a military veteran. We wanna make sure, I was just telling the family, we, we wanna be sure that we love Jesus and that we'll be in heaven just as he was. And so again, how can you know that you're a Christian? Well, I would argue you, you do a similar thing that you do when you're looking for Mr. or Mrs. Wright and that is you look at these three categories. The doctrine test, the moral test, and the love test. And as you look at those three categories, it should affirm that you are indeed a believer. And that's what John did here in chapter two. He gives us this three test breakdown to assure us of our faith. And the first thing he addresses is that of doctrine, the doctrine test, verses one and two. He wrote these words, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the first thing John's getting at here is he's saying, I want you to think about what you believe, Christian. Do you believe that Jesus died for you, that he forgives you? If you believe that, you are indeed a Christian. Now notice he began this, this section here calling the Christians of Ephesus, my little children. He's not scolding these people. He's not talking down to these people, but he actually uses this phrase seven times throughout this letter. You know why he does it? Because when he wrote this letter, John was old. He was probably in his 80s. And he's writing from a paternal, even grandfather-like care and concern for these people. He's saying, I am writing you to encourage you as a spiritual grandfather of the faith. I've been through the school of hard knocks. <laughs> Believe me, I've made a ton of mistakes. I've sinned a lot and I've grown as well in my faith. And I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. Now, what's he talking about here? He's referring back to chapter one that we looked at last week. And he's saying, I'm writing you these things as a spiritual grandfather so that you won't sin. He's not saying you'll never sin because in chapter one, he addresses sin. And if you remember from last week, the whole context of this letter that he wrote, John was writing to Christians who were in Ephesus and they had a group of people that came within their Christian circles and they were teaching a belief system called or a religion called Gnosticism. 
This is the early stages of Gnosticism. And these false teachers came in and they basically said two big things. The first thing they said is, is that the body that you live in, that you dwell in is evil and all physical things are evil. Everything spiritual is good. And so it doesn't really matter what you do in your body. You can just go and do whatever you wanna do, sin as much as you want, because as long as you know what is true and as long as you have a spiritual experience, then you're good with God. John was writing these people saying, don't believe this lie of the Gnostics because even though you're forgiven, it doesn't mean you have a license to sin. It doesn't mean you just go and continue to sin because what you do on this life matters and it echoes into eternity. You store up treasures in heaven. And so be careful, be careful with sin. Do not sin. I urge you, don't sin. But the second thing they were teaching the Gnostics is that you can actually become perfect in this earth. And John is saying, you can't become perfect. No one will ever be perfect on this side of heaven other than Jesus, no one. And so that's why he went on to say, okay, I'm writing these things so you don't sin, but if anyone does sin, which we will, he went on to say, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know this word advocate, it means lawyer, We've got a couple lawyers, I think, in here this morning. Defense attorney, when you think of somebody who defends your case, that's what Jesus is doing right now for us. Because here's the reality. God the Father, God, big G, God, he is perfect. We are not. And because we aren't perfect, there's a huge separation between us and God the Father. That's why we believe in Christmas, because God sent his son to this earth to live a perfect life and then to die a death that we all deserve to die so that we could be made right once again with God the Father. And Jesus, after he ascended into heaven, he's now ruling in heaven in his physical form. He's ruling in heaven and he is our defense attorney. So when we pray, when we ask forgiveness, who is the one defending our case? Jesus He's our advocate and he speaks on our behalf. And if you believe that, you've passed the doctrine test. You're a believer because you know that Jesus right now is ruling on your behalf and he is defending your cause, your case, and he's speaking for you to the Father so that you could have a relationship that is restored with the heavenly Father. So Jesus is our mediator. He's our intercessor. He's our representative. That's what he is. But notice John went on to say he's not just our advocate. He is our propitiation. That's a big word. Verse two, he's the propitiation for our sins and not only ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Notice he's saying Jesus is the propitiation. Now, what is propitiation? For those of you that are scratching your head, what is this word? Propitiation means wrath satisfied. So Jesus, he satisfied the wrath of God when he died, when he shed his blood. Because the payment for that separation between the Father and us was blood. But not just any blood, perfect blood. That's why Jesus assumed human nature. And he he died and he shed his blood so that that would pay for our sins. It would satisfy the fury of God. Jesus is our propitiation. He satisfies, he appeases God's wrath. You know, an example I, I, I give here, you may have heard it before, but I want you to imagine a, a father and his son out in the farm and they have hundreds of acres. And all of a sudden, part of the farm catches on fire. 
and the fire starts to spread and it approaches them. And the father knows if I, I can't get out of sight without this fire getting us. And so what does he do? He takes his son and they run to an already burnt section of the farm. He had dug a hole, they jump into the hole and the son's saying, daddy, we can't stay here, the fire's coming. The fire's coming, it's gonna, it's gonna overpower us, it's gonna take us. And the dad says, son, just trust me, we're gonna be fine. No dad, no dad, the fire's coming, we gotta run. And the dad said, trust me, if we run, we will get burned and we will die. You have to trust me. Sure enough, the fire comes, it rages, it's coming in its full fury and it goes around the father and son because the area that they were in had already been burned and the fire didn't go into that area because it had already been burned. Why do I bring that up? Jesus was burned on our behalf. So when the fury of God came in its full force to us, who did it hit? It didn't hit us. We were spared. It hit Jesus. He took on the wrath of God. And just as that father and son were spared from the fire, so we are spared from the fire. And Christian, if you believe that to be true, you can be assured of your salvation. You are indeed a Christian. You've passed the doctrine test. Now, there is an interesting discussion on verse two. Some of you might be wondering as Presbyterians, he's a propitiation for our sins, not, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is a very debated text, a lot of different interpretations. I'll, I'll give you my Presbyterian reformed interpretation. On a first glance at this verse, it seems like John is saying that Jesus died for the sins of every individual, the whole world. But I don't believe that's what John meant when he wrote this passage. Jesus is not explaining the intent of our atonement, but he's only repeating basic truths. What this is saying is, is that Jesus is the only savior of the world. In 1 John 2, 2, it tells us there is only one way to salvation. And if anyone will be redeemed, it is by Jesus only. You know, one of my favorite verses and, and you have to, when you look at this, the, theologi uh, this um, theological doctrine of particular redemption or limited atonement, you have to look at all of scripture and see how this plays out. One of my favorite verses for this doctrine is Matthew 1, verse 21. And it actually speaks to Christmas. One of my favorite verses. What did Gabriel tell Joseph? He said, Mary will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. What is he saying here? Jesus is gonna come on a mission when he comes to this earth and he's going to secure the salvation for his people that he died for. His people from their sins. There's several other passages, I'll just mention a few. John chapter 10, what did Jesus say? He said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as a father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep, not all sheep, for the sheep, the sheep that know me and I know. Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and listen to these words, and gave himself up for her, not for everyone, for her, the church, the believer. And then Acts chapter 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for who? The church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Who is he caring for, the salvation for? The church, God's people, the believer, not every seven billion people out there, 
but for the believer. So that's what I believe here. But no matter your view on this, no matter what view you hold, we can all agree here that these verses are personal. They're personal. And we can all agree, especially with 1 John 2, verse 2, that Jesus died for you, if you believe it. If you believe it to be true, then you believe he died for you. And how personal is that? It's unbelievable when you think of it that way. So that's the doctrine test that John was referring to. But the second test he gave us is the moral test, verses three through six. Verse three, he said, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The word keep is mentioned three times in verses three through five. What does it mean? Uh, To keep, it means it's a present tense and it stresses continual, regular obedience to God's commandments. It's a military term that means to protect so what is, what is John saying here? He's saying, if you wanna know that you're a believer, obey his commandments. Because as you obey his commandments and as you walk in his ways, then you'll know you're a Christian because you want to live like him. Unfortunately, in these days that we're living and in the days of John that he was living, it's the same thing. There are people who think they're Christians but aren't and they don't practice what they preach. They say one thing and they do another. That's what was going on here. And in verse four, This is what John said about these people. He said, whoever says, I know him, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. In other words, if you say one thing and do another, you're lying, you're living a lie. You're not really a believer because you're not acting like one. What What Jesus even said is in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What does he mean by that? He's saying, if you love me, you're really gonna keep my commandments. You're going to want to keep in step with the spirit. You're going to want to stay in the guardrails. You're going to want to become more like me and to live like me. So that's the moral test. But notice what John also wrote about the moral test in verse five. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. I love this verse and let me explain why. Because you and I cannot simply obey God's word out of our own willpower. We can't say, I'm gonna just muster enough strength and I'm gonna obey these commandments by golly and I don't need God to help me because I can do it on my own. No, that's not true. You can't do it on your own. It's only by the grace of God that you're able to grow in your faith. And verse five tells us, whoever keeps his word in him truly, listen to this, the love of God is perfected. Do you know what perfected means? It means to mature. It doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect. It means to mature, but who is the one doing the maturing? God, the love of God. Did you notice here the love of God is perfected? The word is perfected is passive voice, meaning that God's doing the maturing. He's doing the perfection. And so you and I can't obey out of our own strength. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit by the grace of God to help us to obey He's the one maturing us. And John, as an 80 plus year old veteran, is speaking as a veteran. He's saying, trust me, people. It's only by the grace of God that I'm where I am today. And it's only by the grace of God that where, where you are today, that you are where you are today. He goes on to say here in verse six, by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The word abide is also important here. Because John was saying, if you remain in Christ, 
because he's gonna remain in you if you're a believer. He's with you. He's never gonna leave you. But if you remain in him, you will know for certain that you're a Christian. You will know. Let me ask you this question. Over the years of being a Christian, I'm talking to a lot of seasoned Christians in this room, a lot of you, and I'm very proud to say I'm not only your pastor, but I talk, whenever I talk to people outside of here, I'm like, we got a really mature congregation overall. I mean, we, we got warts, we got sin, we got flaws, we're, no, we're not perfect, but we got a lot of maturity here. You know, as you have matured over the years as a Christian, have you noticed that you want to follow Jesus, that you want to be more like him, that you want to obey him? And if you have, then you're a Christian. You're a Christian. There was a guy by the name of Charles Sheldon. He was a pastor in Topeka, Kansas. And one day, I kid you not, he was ministering in this pretty wealthy church. And and he was in the middle of service preaching. And out of nowhere walks in this man uh, from the streets. He's disheveled. And he ends up disrupting the sermon and the service. And you could tell he was frustrated. All the people were frustrated. And the man just says, I need help. And then within five minutes, he falls down and he dies. Pastor Sheldon, a few weeks later, he reflected on that moment. And he said, my heart was so hard for that man. I didn't have a lot of compassion even when he died because he disrupted my sermon. And he said, I began to ask all the members of the church too how they felt and they were mad because the pastor was getting into it. And all of a sudden this guy walks in and disrupts everything and it just disrupts everything. And they were mad. He said, it was at that moment when we realized we have to change. And he asked the question, what would Jesus do? You remember those bracelets that you wore years ago? What would Jesus do? WWJD? That's where that came from. Pastor Sheldon in Topeka, Kansas. So the moral test is, what would Jesus do? Now, we don't know what he would do in every situation we find ourselves in. But we know a lot of what he would do. That's the question you ask yourself as you're living this Christian life, as you're seeking to become more like him, what would Jesus do in this situation? If you're even asking that question, you're a believer. The third test that John gives us is that of the love test. And this is where he finishes verses seven through 11. But I would say this, the distinguishing mark of being a Christian is love. It's not, the w, it's not if you wear a WWJD bracelet. It's not if you have a fish on the back of your car. It's not even if you have a, a well-read Bible underneath your arm. The distinguishing mark of a Christian is love, L-O-V-E. And if John were to write a Christian song, he would write the theme of love because 24 times he uses the word in 105 verses in this letter. Love. One author said, love is the circulatory system of the church, the circulatory system in our body. It carries blood to every part of it. It nourishes every cell. If your circulatory system shuts down, you die. Just as this circulatory system is vital to your physical body, so the church has its own circulatory system and that is love. If the church does not have love, it will die. If you do not have love, you will die. And that's what John's getting at here. Do you wanna know that you're a Christian? Well, ask yourself, do you love Jesus? Do you love others? Do you even love yourself? Verse verse seven, John uses a personal word, beloved, saying, Christian, I love you. Beloved, you're loved. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. What's he talking about, this old commandment? He's saying, this whole love thing has been around since the beginning. You know, Adam and Eve, and they were walking in the garden with God. There was love there. 
But Moses in the law instructed us in Leviticus 19, 18. He said to love your neighbor as yourself for I am the Lord. This commandment to love your neighbor as yourself was there in the beginning. And what John was saying to the Christians of Ephesus, he's saying, love has always been around. Loving your neighbor as yourself is really the, 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 the Christianity 101. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? But then in verse eight, he went on to say, there's something new about this commandment though. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Christ and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He's talking about when Jesus came in human flesh. That's why we celebrate Christmas. The true light has come to this dark world. And that light is is spreading throughout the ends of the earth. And so the new part of this whole love thing is that love is being spread throughout the nations. It's not just limited to the Jewish people. It's now going to the Gentiles and to the end of the earth. And what John was saying to these Christians was, he was saying, you are a part of that movement. Let your light shine in this dark world just as Jesus shone his light in this world. The other thing about the new commandment, it goes back to John 13. You remember right before Jesus was betrayed, he had the last supper and he, and he washed the disciples' feet. And he said, there's now a new commandment that I'm gonna give you, John 13, 34. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus was saying, I don't want you just to love your neighbor as yourself. I want you now, believer in Christ, to take it up a notch. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself and Love one another as I have loved you. I just washed your feet and now I'm about to die for you. The most sacrificial lesson of love that's ever existed is Jesus dying for us. And he's saying, I'm gonna show you what it means to love. And now after I ascended to heaven, I want you to show this watching world how to love each other. And as you do that, people will flock to Christianity. They'll flock to me because of your love for me and for one another. At the end, he made sure to distinguish, John made sure to distinguish between a true believer and a false teacher, verse nine through 11. The false teacher, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But the true Christian, verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John is saying there's a big difference between a non-Christian and a Christian. There's a big difference between a Gnostic and a true believer. The Gnostic would say, I know Jesus, but they're not living it. There's no fruit. Instead, they hate their brother with malice and ill intent. A believer, on the other hand, would say, hey, I I know Jesus, and I'm seeking to, to love others, and I forgive my brother who once I hated but now I don't hate him anymore because I'm told to forgive just as Jesus has forgiven me. You know what's interesting is verse 11, that brother who continues to hate, he's in the darkness, he walks in the darkness, he doesn't know where he's going and his eyes are blind. Four things about that person. You know, if you really wanna know if you're a Christian, I would encourage you, as you prepare hearts now for communion to think about those three things right now. Do you believe that Jesus loves you and that he died for you? Do you believe that? Do you want to follow him and obey him 
And do you love others? If you're hating someone right now, what John is saying is you might be in darkness. You might not be a Christian if you're literally hating someone right now. So do you hate anybody right now? And if you do, I would encourage you to really do some business with the Lord today. Some of you might be hating a family member or a friend or a coworker or someone in this room. I would encourage you to confess that before you come to this table. Because the, the Lord tells us that we are to come in a worthy manner before we eat and drink from this table. And if you're hating someone right now, you're not gonna come in a worthy manner. And so what I would encourage you to do before you come to this table is we're gonna take just a few, a few, a few seconds here. I want you to pause and I want you to think about where you are with the Lord right now, where you wanna be with him. And if there's any kind of bitterness you have towards somebody or hatred towards somebody, confess it right now to him. You know, give it to the Lord. And what we know from the word of God is if you confess your hatred towards your brother, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and he is just and he will purify you from all unrighteousness and forgive you of your sins.